welcome to the 10th episode of Talking Transitions, the special podcast series brought to you by Foresight Climate and Energy and EY. I'm David Weston, Editor-in-Chief at Foresight and your host. In this series, we are looking at how the transition to a sustainable economy, both from an environmental but also social perspective, is affecting three key areas, the energy resources industry, the financial services sector and government. Supporting me along the way will be key EY thought leaders from the three different areas. And in today's episode, I am joined once more by Serge Collar, EY's Global Energy and Resources Industry Market Leader. Hi, Serge. Are you well? I'm very well. How are you, David? I'm doing very well as well. Thank you. With the deal finally agreed at the end of the COP28 negotiations, national governments now have commitments to transition their energy mixes for a low carbon future. Now it's about putting those commitments into action. Joining Serge and me today on this episode to discuss the next steps for the energy sector is Bruce Douglas, CEO of the Global Renewables Alliance. Thanks for joining us, Bruce. Great to be here, David. Thank you. Bruce, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on the outcomes of COP28? Was it a successful event in the perspective of planet Earth? Well, we are cautiously satisfied, I'd say, David. I mean, for planet Earth, of course, it's not perfect. It really is not good enough. However, you've got to manage expectations at these COP events, and I think we can be you know, quite satisfied with the outcome. We had the, um, the objective to get the tripling of renewable energy by 2030 into the text. It is there. It's a call on governments uh, to, to deliver. And so on that particular point was satisfied. It is. Um, it recognises that it got to stay in line with 1.5 degrees. Um, and in fact, the cover text itself says uh, a global goal to triple renewables by 2030. So, you know, as an industry, we're satisfied. And in fact, we're calling it a, a historic moment. It, it could be seen almost like the, the start of a paradigm shift towards a new clean energy future. In the text, if you read it, it also specifically calls out wind, solar and storage as cost competitive, efficient and low emission. So for the first time, all countries in the world have recognised renewables as the solution, the main solution to, uh, to help with the climate crisis. Obviously, it has to be combined with, uh, with energy efficiency. There's many things one could pick at. There's many holes in it. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. Um, the, the wording around fossil fuel, so it says transition away from. And uh, again, we're cautiously satisfied with that. It's the first time, you know, the elephant in the room, if you like, fossil fuels have been mentioned in the COP text. And so that that's a very strong signal for the direction of travel. I think that's all it is, but it's very much a market signal that this is the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era. Serge, how about from your perspective? What are, the, what are your thoughts on the outcomes of COP28? Yeah, well, so so again, so very much aligned, I would say, in any case with Bruce at at a higher level. Um, I mean, for me, there were a couple of uh, takeaways, and I will also go back maybe to my personal expectations. And you asked me about those in the, I think, in the first time that we that we spoke. Um, you know, I think the the part the part which I found a positive, and you can't find that back into the text. Yeah, but that was in in any case. I mean, this was very much. I would say also a very big business event, yeah? and so other than everything that Bruce just covered, I would say, in the um, you know, which of course we can find in agreement, and that is absolutely the most important bit. Um, the other side, I think, that we can certainly also highlight is the incredible interest and motivation also from broader business to be there. 
and also to actually accelerate and move things forward. So that is certainly, I would say, something which I think is a first compared also to previous COPs. So people are now saying this is the second big business event after Davos. Um, now, again, it's not about, I would say, uh, CEOs talking to CEOs only, but I think the energy that just sort of came out of that, I think, was just was just quite impressive. Um, the, what I called out in terms of hopes and expectations, it was two things. Um, on the one hand, I was talking about, indeed, the requirements that we, rather than talk about, you know, this very big future um, and the very high-level targets um, and the, you know, the far-fetched objectives, so far-fetched as in, you know, for, for quite far away in time in 2050, was that there was a need to have tangible short-term targets. Um, so I thought that this was, this was again, you know, back to Bruce's um, a key point and also the GRE's key point, which we were very proud also to support from the start, right? <clears throat> so double down to triple up. Um, so very glad indeed, because it's, it's, it is, there is a requirement for us to advance very quickly. Um, so that is certainly one. Um, my, my other thing was indeed for the oil and gas industry to step in. And, and we've seen some of that. Um, I think there was a, um, you know, I, I think a, a bit of a prudent start, but it was about, you know, the one emissions, scope one, scope two, um, you know, at the start of the conference, uh, which I think uh, sort of was already, I would say, a good signal. Um, but I still think that we can, you know, that we can do more. Um, also, as a broader oil and gas industry, should be doing more um, because once again, and this is not about, you know, good, good, good sort of actor, bad actor. Um, I think we are where we are, but as said, I think we need everybody to chip in and we need a lot of the positive capability, finance, you know, risk management and so on that the oil and gas industry has to really accelerate. Yeah. So, so I think some of that has materialized, not all of it, um, but certainly uh, potentially even a little bit more than I expected, if I'm honest. So yeah, all in all positive. So there was a lot of momentum behind uh, the GRA's double down, triple up campaign before the event, which carried on through COP2028 and into the final text. How do we maintain that momentum into 2024, Bruce? At COP28 itself, there was enormous momentum created by the campaign, but also by our collaboration with IRENA at the Global Renewables Hub. Thanks also to EY for their strong support uh, at that hub. There was so much noise around Double Down, Triple Up. It became a, like a meme. Um, one of the most surreal moments for me at the event was sitting next to the UK energy minister. And he, obviously from protocol, he, he went first. Uh, in his closing remarks, he said the best way to the unlock the clean energy future is to double down and triple up. So, you know, he, he stole our line. But that happened continuously. The amount of noise around the tripling of renewables and the pledge from over 130 countries to triple up renewables um, gave a lot of momentum and and helped get it into the final text. You know, and we're seeing that going into 2024 with a lot of contact with people asking, okay, how can we collaborate? What are the next steps to get this implemented uh, and get it delivered? And Serge, how do we get it? How do we carry on into 2024? Yeah, well, so so the let's say if I go back to the conversations that we had, David, um, the um, I would say the, the, the view that I would take is that I think, for, first of all, I think it's, it's perhaps a good idea. So maybe a question to you, Bruce. I think you ran a very successful campaign in New York, um, you know, with the ad, um, you know, which was a call to double down, triple up. Um, I think now we could have a call for action. Uh, that would be good. Um, I mean, unfortunately, what I would say is that, you know, the challenge that we've been talking about, you know, which is, uh, you know, all about releasing the handbrake was the, uh, let's say, or the handbrakes was the, the phrasing that we had. Um, when we looked at our modeling, um, and we talked a lot about the acceleration, specifically renewables. So, 
you know, as well as EVs. So we're very positive about the uptake of, you know, a lot of the new technology, clean tech specifically, um, you know, as it is happening now. But the reality is that we still have those handbrakes uh, being very real. Um, we talked about, you know, the infrastructure challenge. We talked about the supply chain challenge and um, the fact that, you know, we need to give investors a better line of sight, um, you know, to de-risk their investments, better line of sight in terms of, you know, stable returns that they would achieve and positive ones too. And of course, we need to make sure that all solutions are better for customers and cheaper as well. So I think those those handbrakes, you know, broadly categorized, so they're still in existence. So, you know, carry on the momentum would mean also, you know, making sure that we actually tackle on those different, you know, pockets of resistance uh, or handbrakes, if I can call them. So that would be my focus. Now, I can't obviously ask you to share any details or, or specific details about the conversations you perhaps had in Dubai, uh, but EY presented its Energy and Resources Transition Acceleration Report. Uh, and obviously, the Global Renewables Alliance had its open letter before COP uh, and its uh, double down, triple up campaign. In the conversations you had in Dubai, were people wholly receptive to the messaging, uh, both in the report uh, and of the campaign? Yeah, absolutely. From our perspective, you know, the conversation with senior policymakers. Uh, it is has moved from why would we do it to how can we get it done? As I say, over 130 countries endorse the pledge to triple renewables. Um, that's a huge commitment. And you're absolutely right that, you know, it, it, they, not only were we invited into the room, we were asked for our opinion. So probably more than 40, 50 meetings, interactions with heads of state and ministers. I mean, that's unprecedented um, for the private sector at COP and certainly for the renewables industry. I think we probably had on our pavilion maybe 200 um, advocates for renewables. That's ourselves, our associations, but also, you know, CEOs of large uh, large corporations. You know, the likes of, of Serge was there representing EY. So, you know, very significant, high-profile figures advocating for renewables. Um, and, and we were listened to. I mean, that's the impression we got. And, uh, and you see that reflected uh, in the outcome text. Yeah, and David, maybe if I can add an element, what I found, which was a good shift in the conversation, was that, you know, as we were talking about, you know, really moving or like jumping like an S-curve of investments is what you could call it, right? It's not just like, you know, getting up, uh, but it's really jumping there to the next S-curve of investment. Um, you know, I had certainly more conversations about, you know, how do we tackle this at industrial scale? So moving from, you know, individual projects, individual developments to, you know, how do we build a new system at scale? Right. I mean, one of the conversations and, and Bruce, we probably need to connect on that. But, you know, what was, for instance, I mean, if we're going to be building out one of the biggest renewable, you know, wind offshore systems in the world, which is in the North Sea, um, you know, and that's going to be, what is it, 200 plus uh, gigawatts that needs to be built out by 2050. And of course, already very sizable than before that. I mean, that, that is actually a system challenge. You can't possibly do it because when you just think about infrastructure, you think about a supply chain and everything else that needs to be built. I mean, that requires different thinking and a different approach rather than just doing individual auctions, individual developments, right? So for me, you know, in terms of, I would say, a really good shifting conversations would be this sort of bigger industrial size thinking, um, you know, that, that I think will be required. Um, but it is also, I would say, a very positive evolution. Yeah. So more to be done there for sure. Absolutely. Just to, to come in on that. I'll give you two examples of initiatives. I mean, there's dozens of initiatives that we we were launching, we were involved in. 
Um, and there's two. One is the industrial transition accelerator, going to your point, Serge, where we sat with the CEOs of the international cement, steel, aluminium, maritime organizations. So how could renewables help decarbonize their sectors? And again, one of the first times we've seen that. The second is uh, an initiative by the Global Wind Energy Council called the Global Offshore Wind Alliance. And it's got you know more than 12, I think it's almost 15 countries or ministers as members of that alliance, all looking to accelerate, uh, you know, large scale uh, offshore wind and and markets that, you, you know, you wouldn't consider normal, you know, California, obviously, Denmark, UK, but also um, there's Vietnam and Brazil who are members of this uh, alliance to push offshore wind. So the conversation's definitely shifted and I'd say it's shifted fast. And uh, I think we're going to see it accelerate even more uh, over the coming years. And what about sort of anything else that you perhaps heard uh, in your conversations at COP? Did anything really uh, stand out from these talks? The standout has to be finance. That's the new elephant in the room. You know, to to scale to tripling of renewables is going to take $10 trillion cumulative between now and 2030. We have to build three gigawatts and connect three gigawatts of renewables every day between now and 2030. So, you know, in order to get that done, we need to mobilize massive amounts of capital and uh, not so much the developed world, but for, for emerging markets, developing economies, the cost of capital, com- capital can be two, three or four times higher than the developed world. So we need, you know, we need a new approach to that, new business models. We need public money, MDBs to come in and de-risk those projects where private capital can then step in. So you know, that was you know, the hot potato. It's not, it, it's not adequately reflected in the final text. So that's a you know, big missed opportunity needs to be addressed going forward in order to really scale up renewables. And the second one I would mention is the just and equitable transition. So as we scale renewables to that extent, we need to make sure that, you know, we bring people along with us, that we do it in a way that engages communities and also for for nature. So, you know, as nature positive as possible, taking into account biodiversity. So it's absolutely clear on the ground in COP and says you probably sense that, you know, it it was you know the global north was there, but we were you know very much um, aware of the global south view of tripling of renewables. You know, who's going to pay for it? They'll do it if 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 um, you know there's there's money to do it. And I think there is the finance there. We need to mobilise it uh, and get this done. Yeah, and if I can build that, Bruce, because it is very true. Um, I also find, by the way, the topic very worrying, if I'm honest. Yeah, in that sense that, I mean, you know, actually uh, addressing the finance challenge specifically also for Global South, I mean, you could say, you know, is is is, is like a double whammy or it's like a double problem. In that sense, it's not just about, you know, capital deployment to actually build out new infrastructure. The reality is if we don't do it, I mean, then we're building alternatives because there's a lot of growth going on there, right? And the alternative is to build, to build you know, fossil-based uh, plants, uh, specifically coal plants, and they'll be in the system for many, many years to come. So, you know, it's it's not just about, you know, getting the infrastructure challenge done, but also then making sure that we actually deploy capital indeed in the right place where the alternative otherwise is to build new infrastructure, fossil-based. Um, because you could say arguably, be, I mean, the North, the North, uh, the Global North will be will be doing its part to a certain extent. I mean, they certainly also need to need to step up significantly. Um, but, you know, it's a different sort of power challenge, right, or energy challenge. It's about replacing something which is already in existence, um, you know, rather than rather than really scaling up, um, I would say, the energy infrastructure, you know, for future growth, you know, of GDP and population, which is happening specifically Southeast Asia, but also, you know, increasingly in Africa. 
Um, so, so I think it's 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 a massive challenge. Um, so it's not just you know double down to triple up, but it's also double down to triple up in the right place, which makes it even more complicated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was a big issue there, which is we can't ask them to transition out of you know to phase out fossil fuels immediately. I mean, you know, the short-term economic crisis caused by you know immediate transition away from from that would be much bigger than you know the longer term climate crisis for them so so that's why we need to have that fair and just and, and orderly transition which allows renewables to build up while we you know proactively phase out fossil fuels but it, you know that's a, that's a big challenge but has to be taken into account to avoid you know what would be a catastrophe for for the developing world yeah exactly and and I, and I would say better building on that so on a different time scale right because one element you could say is to add new capacity um, you know, to cater for the for the uh, I mean current growth figures that we're seeing in those newer economies. Um, but the other problem that we also talked quite a bit about, uh, and David, you will remember, we talked about the problem of what we call asset attrition, right? As in, you know, there, there is a lot. Of, I mean, one of the reasons why right now, I mean, we have this quite worrying projection, um, you know, about decarbonisation um, because we've seen acceleration, which is positive, but you know, at least pre-COP. Um, I would say the outlook uh, wasn't that great. If I just look at, you know, I would say CO2 reductions, the way that we predict them um, in our modeling. Um, and the key reason, of course, was, you know, it's very hard for customers to get rid of, you know, perfectly functioning good assets, uh, reliable assets that they invest that, you know, hard-earned money in, um, you know, to, to replace it with something else. And we said, you know, either you need something which is, you know, another technology which has a significantly better business case to actually write down whatever, value is left on the assets and then go for something new right so that hasn't so it's not about you know it needs to be slightly better it needs to be significantly better right or you do you need you know compensation or you need legislation that will cater for that and ultimately somebody has to pay for that yeah so so that that is really the worrying part right so it's not about the build out of the new where you could say arguably between now and 2030 a lot of that new capacity will have to go in that direction but when we're thinking about replacing existing assets, as in decarbonizing the current power system, um, you know that's that's where I would say this other challenge comes on top, which is you know basically dealing with existing assets which are, still have a lifetime ahead of them. And, and is there an appetite among uh, either the market and/or uh, government and the public sector uh, to to help with that and to help? You know, move some of these uh, polluting forms of energy off the system, perhaps before they were uh, meant to or designed to to come off. Yeah, I mean, you're probably going to say the same as me. Says, yeah, I mean, what we felt in in COP is exactly that. I mean, they're very much willing to accelerate the commissioning of of power plants and avoid building new infrastructure. You know, but the the right financing needs to be in place for the mass deployment of renewables to to allow them to develop economically. Socioeconomic benefits have to be seen uh, at the same time as uh, decarbonisation. Yeah. Um, so what's next then? What what would you like to see happen in 2024 uh, that can maintain this momentum that's been, kind of been built up at COP uh, behind clean energy and also energy efficiency? So, so that's, I would, in, in my opinion, it's much more important than one, what happened at COP. You know, what happens next in 2024 is critical. I mean, we talk about the three A's, you know, ambition, action and accountability. Well, we've got the ambition now. That's clear. That That's set uh, in the text. Action is the things we were discussing around finance. You could point to permitting, grids, value chains. We're talking detail about those. But um, accountability is where countries now need to look at their 
uh, NDCs, the National Determined Contributions, and their own national renewable energy targets to align them with this new tripling. Yeah, We also need some sort of review mechanism. Like, How do we monitor and report progress on an annual basis towards this target so we can annually see, okay, are we moving in the right direction fast enough? I mean, currently, we are not moving fast enough. We are way off track. Um, as I say, you know, we need to be building three gigawatts a day. You know, we're not even close to that. So, you know, that's the 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 big task now for us as the Global Renewables Alliance, you know, along with organizations like EY, but also governments to say, you know, what are the concrete actions? We think we've, we, we know them. We think we know what they are. We just put out a report a few weeks ago in great detail about what those enablers are and how to get it done. Um, but now it's implementation um, is the key word. And Serge, what, what, what would you like to see happen in 2024 uh, in order to carry on? Yeah, so well, so I would say the, 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 good, the good news is that I'm already seeing at least, you know, from, from what I'm sort of, I would say, you know, reading and, and hearing also from my different teams, uh, you know, across, across uh, you know, in, in different places, is that, you know, th- there's already certain dynamic is what I'm seeing in the number of countries um, that are actually using, you know, what's been going on in COP. Um, to already try and accelerate. Um, so there's already live discussions, I would say, in certainly several member states across Europe, um, in parts of the US as well, um, in Asia. Um, so again, these are just snippets, right? But you can certainly see that, you know, there's already conversations about acceleration going on. Um, and that is, of course, not just because people were waiting for the final text, but, you know, there were already ongoing conversations about the fact that it's now so clear and that the ambition is there. Um, it just gives those discussions just more wins. But I think ultimately, I think to Bruce's point, um, you know, making sure that we have a very firm framework, um, you know, regulatory framework, policy framework in place that actually, you know, drives to success. Uh, because, I mean, Bruce is right. Right now, I think, you know, the current capacity is about two and a half times less, I mean, in terms of build out of what it should be, um, you know, to reach uh, the, the, the triple up targets, um, I mean, roughly. Um, and so every year, month that we wait in achieving that, um, it will have to build more, of course, in the years after that. Again, that is a problem with time here. Um, so, but 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 what I'm also hoping again is that is that we really start up those you know industrial size conversations about making sure that we have the right value chain, that we have the right infrastructure to actually make those connections work. Yeah. So you know, as much as we need you know acceleration of ongoing projects, um, think about the fact that there's congestion. I think there's about three thousand gigawatts. You know, congested um, you know projects right now globally um, as we speak. Um, UK alone has over 200 gigawatts. Um, you know, so so again, so this this is important that we deal with that here and now. Um, but you know, if we are to hit those really big numbers, um, imagine the last two three years of of this decade, uh, the numbers will have to be bigger than the thousand gigawatts per year uh, that Bruce was talking about. Um, you know, this will require this industrial scale infrastructure to be there, right? I mean, the connections, the uh, supply chain and so on. Um, so so uh, we need to be ready for that now. Yeah. So that needs to be discussed and planned for now. Yeah. Not not again. So so the business, the business, you know, in terms of building this out in a couple of years now will be vastly different. Will have to be vastly different from how we do things now. Yeah. And on that topic of delay, you know, I mean, delay in our industry is death for mm. projects. Um, so in addition to the grids that Serge mentioned, you know, permitting is another huge topic. There's probably another couple few thousand gigawatts waiting uh, for, for planning permission. Um, and there it takes longer 
to permit a, a wind farm than it does to to build it in most jurisdictions. I mean, that's ridiculous given the current situation where we are. So it's it's a low cost, no cost way to to accelerate renewables is simply shorten those time frames, get permitting fixed. Um, we just put out a nine point plan for how that could be done to to accelerate the the transition. So what are the main priorities there for the therefore for the clean energy sector? We've touched on uh, grids and permitting. That's very much more on the regulatory side of things. What are the priorities for the clean energy sector uh, to meet the needs of the energy transition? So clear, clearly supply chains, value chains more broadly. So, you know, jobs, training, mm. um, critical uh, minerals and materials, but uh, supply, you know, supply chains themselves. So the, the manufacturing facilities they need to be built out as soon as possible. And so there we need those stable long-term market signals. The text helps, mm. the cop text helps. But as I said, you know, you need that the, the long-term view to build investor confidence, you need to build markets, and then our industry will build manufacturing capacity. And not just in China and the US, as you see, you know, with the IRA and, and the Chinese mm. uh, uh, progress, but, but also in new markets. You're seeing India develop its own wind turbine manufacturing Brazil, likewise. In fact, India may well become an exporter of wind turbines. So, so that's the way forward to build a diverse, secure, and resilient supply chain for all renewable technology. And that can only be done by you know these these long term uh, market signals. Exactly, and I would say and that also requires, I think, you know, stability. Hopefully, geopolitically, um, you know, that is important. Um, and I think we, we've talked in the past, David, also about you know dependency from China. Um, you know, and then also the concern, you know, from some countries that want to de-risk um, you know, their dependency. Um, but I mean, once again, if we look at, you know, the reality, we look at the facts, we look at the role of China in the broader supply chain. Um, you know, this is not about uncoupling. It's still, it will still be about collaboration. Yeah. And so we have this really sort of complex problem, this conundrum almost of, you know, geopolitical priorities, you know, in conjunction with the reality of a current supply chain and, you know, the existing dependencies. Um, but where there's also opportunity, I think, really for collaboration. And I think maybe, Bruce, I mean, you've been closer perhaps to conversations with the Chinese, but, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, increasingly, you know, we have a more stable environment of doing business. I mean, China's, I think, has an incredibly important role in decarbonization, but also, of course, in view of its manufacturing capability. I think there is a desire and there's good initiatives with other countries to also, you know, re-industrialize to a certain extent, and that will happen. Right. But again, if you want to be moving fast, I mean, we can't do it in this sort of disruptive zero sum kind of game, which is, by the way, not a reality. Um, but we will need to find a way to to really streamline the collaboration and streamline those supply chains. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the transition, energy transition can't happen without the, without China. That's for sure. Uh, they're developing the vast uh, majority of uh, renewables. Um, uh, but interestingly, ironically, they have a very stable uh, uh, political uh, situation and you know one of our biggest challenges is is when policy um politics sorry politics gets in the way of policy mm -hmm. you know we can have stable policies in place and then politics come along and you know my my country of birth uk is specialist in flip-flopping on energy policy have we've seen <laughs> recently which does nothing for in investor confidence and you cannot build yeah. a local industry or even local uh, projects with um you know with uncertainty to that degree and and so what can the low carbon energy and resource sectors do to help uh, in that we mentioned earlier the, ju the just transition uh, and moving into 2024 and beyond how do they bring the society with you and and make sure that everyone benefits from this transition yeah so public acceptance is key you know you can't scale renewables mm. to that extent without you know and, and we would advocate for very early community engagement 
and uh, and providing benefits to the community. You know, financial benefits um, and local access to affordable energy. I mean, it does bring you know, inward investment, job creation, of course, clean air locally and globally. So it brings benefits to the community. So we need to raise awareness and uh, educate on the benefits, explain, you know, the alternatives. And, uh, and and by doing so, you know, we can win the argument. We, we've made mistakes as the industry in the past. I think we've learned from them. But, you know, relative to the alternative, which is, you know, continued fossil fuel uh, exploration and exploitation, it's, um, you know, it it's a significant opportunity. Yeah, and I, and I would say yeah, again, I mean, you can look at it from different angles, right? But on the one hand, you could say there's there's the, the context of those that will be disrupted, right? Again, again, there were even also within Europe very extensive conversations about the impact, for instance, on the coal industry or the coal um, uh, the coal fired plants, you know, basically, uh, and all of the people that 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 sort of work in that industry in Poland. Um, but of course, it's not just Poland, but the reality is, you know, as we decommission those plants, we need to cater for those people. The good news is indeed is that, you know, if we look at all the jobs that the new economy will bring, um, I think just to sort of look at, you know, if we look at the charging business and the EVs, um, you know, between now and 2030, we will require close to a million new jobs in Europe alone, right? So that is a reality. That is also, I think, the just energy transition is making sure that, you know, those people working in the fossil-based industry, that they do have those new jobs um, that will also require investment and retraining. Um, the, the other thing is that I think I think the global north, I mean, other than the financing we talked about, and again, and there's, you know, loss and damages and so on. So mon- money, of course, money, money, money. Uh, but the other thing is that is that you know the, the the global north has a very important role to play, specifically when we think about you know innovation. Um, and as Bruce pointed out correctly, I mean obviously there's loads of innovation going on in you know a number of of countries in the global south. So this is certainly not I would say you know an exclusivity of the north. But the reality is there's there is a lot of innovation which is happening in the clean industry um, or in clean around clean tech is what I meant. Um, you know in the global north, which ultimately. You know, of course, we'll have to we'll have to serve, of course, also the global south, and that's I think also one of those benefits that uh, that or one of I would say the the additional benefits. Um, I think that you know the investments that we're doing here, uh, you know, will will be will be more global, and and we've seen that, for instance, in solar. I think Germany almost single handedly funded the initial phase of the technology curve of solar. Um, you know, and we'll see that in other in other industries as well, and that is a requirement. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the. the- development of new technology there. We're talking about lots of getting lots of hardware in the ground. Um, but what about the role of digitalization uh, within the energy sector in the coming years? And how can we leverage that to help uh, accelerate the energy transition, but also um, support uh, emerging markets and the global south as well? Yeah, absolutely critical. And I think the um, one example I could give is on the grids mentioned by Serge, you know, I think it's $5 trillion of investment needed cumulatively by 2030 to make this happen, the tripling. So it's you know it's a, it's a huge amount, but no no grid is the best grid, and you can bring about that by energy system optimization by having sophisticated digital uh, interactions with the grid. You know the smart grids can reduce the need for building new infrastructure, and so I think that's a you know again a, a cost efficient way of of developing renewables by using digitalization. And the second example would be simple things like digitalization of permitting processes. So currently, it's all paper-based. It's not standardized. You know, it's extremely complicated and lengthy. And so, there's a project now to try and digitize uh, permitting, which not only speeds up, we can do multiple permits in, in parallel. 
Yeah, I'm build, building on that. So I would say there's a second one, right? Because I think as as the way, the way that I would categorize that, you know, what, what Bruce just described is that we're sort of going through this incredible installation phase right now. Yeah. So and you can say this is capital deployment, putting kit in the ground. But ultimately, in this new energy system, we need to integrate it, right? I mean, otherwise, uh, you know, it will simply not work yeah, because of its you know, decentralized nature, you know, load on the grid and so on. And, you know, so to make it work and then also to save money on new investment, as in more copper and anything else, I mean, this is where we require additional platforms uh, to do that optimization. I think that the, the second reason why it's absolutely critical that we have those, you know, I would say digital platforms is that, you know, we have an opportunity to have something which is not just, you know, healthier, more sustainable, um, but also which is simply a better experience. And, and I sort of, it's been my customer mantra, uh, you know, if you want to sort of move into, you know, jump the S curve, uh, move to exponential adoption curves with, constant, with customers, I would say the clean tech alternative needs to be cheaper and better. I think we need to think in those radical terms, um, not just about sustainability, because this is not what the mass market will go for, um, it just has to be simply cheaper, but also better. And I think the better part will certainly also come to extend also the cheaper one, but the better part can certainly also come from more integrated plat platform, better experience. Um, you know, and again, um, if you think about integrated home energy management, uh, you know, cars being a new platform integrated with energy, I think this is where there's a lot of opportunity to, uh, to actually get those benefits from the customers. Yeah, digitalization will bring that, you know, increased uh, customer benefit. You know, the customer engagement with these technologies has improved. I mean, one quick anecdote, if you don't mind. My my mum, obviously my mum, I persuaded to put solar panels on a house. Well, she's gone way beyond that. She's got an electric vehicle. She's got, a you know, an app, a mobile-based app, um, smart meter, and she manages her energy through that. So it saves her money um reduces her carbon footprint you know all in quite a fun way for her so you know you scale that up to industrial commercial level of course that's already happening where they can move uh, load in time and location uh, data centers um but also you know on the production the generation side sophisticated solar panel uh, inverters wind turbines with multiple sensors you know so the future is now you see digitalization now but it can uh, it can only increase Absolutely, uh, and Bruce. Just finally, for you, um, I think in one of our, in our maybe even our first uh, episode, uh, Andy Brogan from uh, EY uh, mentioned um, the renewable sector's dirty secret in that it, you know, it, it is quite reliant on uh, mining uh, for many of its materials, and steel is quite an important material in in that as well. How can the energy sector improve its carbon footprint and lower its own emissions? Well, you know, we can't deny that we're going to need mining for critical materials, but you know, it can be done in a in a in a, in a way that's as, as limiting as possible to nature and biodiversity. What I will say, I mean, I don't unfortunately have the figure in my head, but you can look it up. Is the difference between the exploitation of, of mining for the clean energy future relative to the fossil fuel, the current fossil fuel system, and it is, signi is significantly less. Um, so it's a it's a false a false. Uh, falsehood that the renewables will be dirtier i mean what we're doing as an industry is we're being extremely careful we have sustainability standards for solar for wind for hydro we are um, have human rights um, programs in place so you know we're doing it in the, the best possible standards to to avoid repeating the mistakes of the fossil fuel industry and i think that's the way it has to be um, that may come at a slightly extra cost 
uh, slight extra delay, but you know it has to be done right uh, or or not done at all. I mean, the only sustainable energy, uh, the only energy for the future is sustainable energy, which means that whole holistic three hundred and sixty view, um, including the carbon footprint of manufacturing. You know, the emissions from our own own production, and you see many progressive companies, Vestas uh, on the wind side, many solar companies now moving towards 100% renewable energy procurement for their factories. And I think that's the way to go. And, um, and uh, yeah, we, we, we fully support that move. Yeah, and, and I, w- I would say the, um, I think what we have to realize, and that is perhaps, uh, and you know, David, I'm, I'm an optimist. <laughs> I try to be realistic, but I'm also optimistic, you know, is that, I mean, we, we, we're looking and talking about, you know, and it, I would say it's still a reasonably sort of nascent or young industry, right? Um, you know, if you look at, at, at how we sort of bring things to scale now, the developments that we see right now. Um, so I think that there's still a lot of opportunity to do much better. And even if we just think about recycling as an example, because mining, you know, you will relieve some of the mining requirements if you can actually, you know, also recycle much better. Um, you know, if you look at how the initial batteries were made, yeah, I mean, you practically had to burn them afterwards to then get the precious materials out of them, um, you know, because they were polymers and integrated and was you know, all molded together. Whereas, you know, the new the new manufacturing processes, uh, you know, allow for much better, um, you know, recyclability, if that is English, um, you know, of those of those batteries. Yeah, so that is one. I mean, the, the other element, for instance, if you think about innovation, and again, uh, another good example in batteries is that, you know, increasingly we're seeing that a lot of the rare earth minerals are being eliminated out of the newer battery cells. Yeah. So, so again, um, I think there's a lot to look forward to in a positive way. Um, clearly, um, you know, I think there will be an additional stress. Um, I mean, you know, we simply we do require a lot of more copper and steel and so on. Um, so there will have to be mines that is inevitable. Um, that needs to be held to the highest standards, um, I would say, of sustainability or sustainable development. And by the way, there's a lot going on in the mining sector also in that regard, I can tell you that. Um, but but the reality is between, I would say, what the mining business needs to do, but also what will happen on the material side and the recycling side, um, I think I think there's, there's you know, a lot of positive development and certainly a lot of margin for, I would say, further improvement. Yeah, just what my last word maybe, David, on, on that is, yeah, of course. is we only need to transition once. So once you've built the renewable infrastructure from the generation side and the grid infrastructure for mm-hmm. transmitting the green electrons, you're done. Yeah? Of course, there's some operation of maintenance, mm-hmm. repowering, but in principle, it's done. So it's a 20, 30-year project. And once we're done globally, you know, you don't need to mine and, and burn fuel. Yeah? It, it's, uh, so you know, and that's a message to you know, the transition is a once-in-a-generation once opportunity. And once we're there, there's enormous benefits will accrue. And no one said it's going to be easy, going to be easy but uh, it's going to be clear. Yeah, of course, that's for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Serge, just finally, then a question for you. This is the third uh, podcast we've sat uh, in on together. What have you learned across the series so far? Well, I think I think it's it's this uh, sort of shared sense of urgency. Very clearly, um, I think you know there's a lot of enthusiasm, you know, before COP already, um, during COP, and after COP about the fact that we are effectively accelerating, um, but also that, you know, it's not going quickly enough. I think everybody agrees about that. And you could even also hear Bruce, uh, I think Bruce, despite the incredible success of GRE, um, I think you also voiced a lot of caution, I think, on the end results. I think that remains. So that, that is certainly, I would say, a consistent theme. Um, the other bit for me was also, I think, this, 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 this sense of how big the challenge is. 
Yeah, and then again, you know, despite despite the last words of Bruce there in terms of, you know, we just need to build it once. The problem is we need to build it once, but in a very short time frame. And it's a lot of capital. And a lot of people don't have the capital. So this industrial size scale, um, you know, and the complexity of removing all assets out of an energy system, I think, you know, is, is probably very, very daunting. Um, and that is also some of the, uh, you know, something that came back. And then maybe the last thing is also how I started, which is, you know, the call out for business. Yeah. So this is not consumers and governments alone. I mean, there's a lot of business interest to move faster, even those that actually are, you know, just on the consuming side. Yeah, they also see an opportunity to do things cheaper and better and more sustainable. Um, so I was really impressed with that. So all in all, some some really good, I think, positive thoughts. But, um, you know, we were rolling up our sleeves, but we'll have to do uh, way more work. Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for uh, for this episode of Talking Transitions. My thanks to Bruce and Serge for joining us today. Please do rate, review and share the podcast using the hashtag Talking Transitions, all one word, uh, to join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening.